Hello and welcome to Beyond the Ballot Box with me, Dashran Johan. You're listening to the first episode of our new monthly series, Upper Macham Adun, where we speak to a different Slango State Legislative Assembly member each month and you get to send in your questions too, so it's a bit like a town hall. Um, joining me on today's first episode is YB Rajiv Rishakaran. He's the Adun for Bukit Gasing and a member of the DAP. Welcome to the show, Rajiv. Hi, thank you so much for having me on your first ever show. Thank you so Beyond much. The Ballot. For, yes, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I'm happy so, to be here. So today, we're going to be focused on public transportation and last mile connectivity. But since we are on the road to the Slango State elections and a number of other state elections, we're going to be talking about that as well uh, later on in the show. So if you'd like to send in some questions for Rajiv, you can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899. You can tweet us at BFM Radio. You can also call us 033773-2900. All right, so I want to start with some introductory questions. All right, let's um, do you it. Know, um, so basic question, what's the difference between an Adon and an MP? What is your job scope versus, say, for example, Sharizan Johan, who is the MP for Bangi? Hi, uh, I think that's a very interesting question. And uh, I think a lot of different elected reps may give you different answers. Now, there is a lot of common tasks that we do. So basically, we represent our respective areas. We represent the people in our areas. We represent the NGOs in our areas. We represent the issues that uh, businesses face uh, in our areas. And that's pretty much the same between an MP and an Adun. Uh, we are the voice of the people. We, we help navigate uh, the challenges that our respective constituency uh, faces. Where it is different is an MP uh, raises issues in parliament, an MP uh, is in parliament to make the decisions on the floor of the parliament, such as passing the various laws tabled in parliament, passing the federal budget, and a state assemblyman is at the state level, uh, passing of the laws tabled at the state level, passing of the state budget. Uh, so that's where we have different roles right. uh, at at the state assembly and at the parliament, but outside, on the ground, I think it's quite similar <laughs> in right. terms of um, meeting the people, uh, understanding their challenges, their problems, listening to their suggestions and uh, advocating for changes on the ground. Right. I want to zoom in a little bit more on the differences. What are the powers afforded to the federal government versus the powers afforded to the state government? Oh, all right. So uh, the federal constitution defines uh, the role of the federal government and state governments, uh, the role of parliament and the state assembly. It's quite lopsided, I'll be blunt. <laughs> The federal government gets most of the legislative power. You talk about finance, raising of various taxations. Uh, you talk about national security, um, internal security, healthcare, transport, uh, education. It, it's all on the federal level. State government has quite limited powers. Uh, state government has uh, power over land, but it's also limited because the constitution does specify that there's a national land council and parliament also makes the national land code. So it's not absolute power, some power over land, uh, power over religious matters, Islamic affairs, uh, power over the environment, but that's shared with the federal government. Federal government also has power over the environment. Uh, so that's the power on the state level. But the role that the state government plays is a bit more than the constitution powers because right. some federal laws have delegated power to the state governments. For example, the Town and Country Planning Act, it's a federal law. Uh, it's under the federal jurisdiction. Parliament makes the law. Parliament makes the frameworks. But the actual duties of planning the towns have been delegated to the states. Right. But 
parliament could change the law tomorrow and take it all back. <laughs> right. So we've got a question here from Twitter. And how do MPs and Adons interact with one another and delegate duties? Um, so this person says, so um, let's say YB Lee Chen Cheong, he's the MP for Petaling Jaya. Is he your boss? No, we are right. not each other's bosses. We are colleagues. We are friends. We meet each other once in a while. We do talk about some of the bigger issues in our area, some of the smaller issues we just handle on our own, uh, some of the bigger ones we will sit down and talk sometimes over lunch, right. sometimes just directly. Uh, we WhatsApp a lot <laughs> to each other. And and uh, he has his opinion and I have my opinion. Thankfully, in the case of my personal experience, we are quite alike. Right. <laughs> so we don't have much clashes and I don't think the public has ever seen us go like head to head. Like, you know, he wants things done that way and I want things done this way. All right. Okay, so let's um, cut to, you know, the, the key topic we are discussing today, which is congestion, public transport, last mile connectivity. Um, Rajiv, you know the Klang Valley is known for its congestion. In Indeed fact, it's it is. reported that Klang Valley employees spend around 44 hours a month stuck in traffic. That's a right. huge chunk of your time just sitting in your car doing nothing. How do you plan to address the issue of traffic congestion in Slango? What can you do and what can't you do? Alright, so uh, let's take one step back for a minute and, and look at how transport Transport is structured. Uh, transport is um, a federal jurisdiction under our constitution, but the state government has also placed a, a, an active role advocating and providing some services uh, with, you know, under license from the federal government. I am a public transport enthusiast. Mm -hmm. I have been advocating for various public transport improvements over the last 15 years, and I will continue to do so. And, and both the federal and the state government uh, has a role to play in bringing this forward. So now, I'm not part of the state government. Uh, that is the Menteri Besan, the 10 exco members. I'm the backbencher. Right. But as backbenchers, we advocate uh, for things to be done. And, and public transport is one of the things I advocate for. So, yes, in the Klang Valley, you're right. There is a problem. And you know what? There is no city in the world, more than 2 million people, that can succeed and thrive on cars alone. Right. And every city in the world that is more than 2 million people, you either have good public transport or you have gridlock jams. Uh, cities that are small, 600,000 people, uh, they can they can do well be car, while being car-based. They don't have to be stuck in traffic jam while being car-based. But around the world, now, anyone listening to this can, can text in if you know of an example. Around the world, you either have good public transport like Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, Melbourne, or... You have traffic jams like KL, Bangkok, Jakarta. So uh, we must, first and foremost, have an interest, a conviction, a desire to embrace public transport if we want to get out of congestion. So the government can provide products and services, but you and I have to start opening our minds and options and like, are we willing to use public transport. Now, KL is in the state where we all want public transport. I think if you run a BFM poll now to say, like, do we want improvements to public transport? 99% will say yes. Right. Uh, but, but we want the other, we want our neighbour to use public transport. We still want to use our car. You use public transport, I use my car. So that's the <laughs> challenge. Now, everyone is saying, you use public transport, I'll use my car. So we need everyone to want to use public transport uh, and, and, and have that mindset shift if you're going to make it. And in the meantime, the government needs to provide better public transport infrastructure. Now, it's not just MRTs and LRTs, but it's the whole uh, multimodal system. We, we, it is not no longer a train, bus, 
walking three step right. thing. Now now we have various things in the middle. Uh, so we need more public transport infrastructure. We must be willing to pay for it, which means uh, more tax money needs to go there. Um, and, and that's a bit painful. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's always a bit painful. But, but if we are not willing to do that, we can't climb out of this mess. Right. So I want to touch on some initiatives that you have done, right? So yes. you have done um, Kumpol, you have done, uh, Kump- now you recently launched 2.0, there's the Skip Driving Scooter Initiative. Now, but to me, these are good initiatives. I think very few people argue that, but it seems like a band-aid to larger issues mm-hmm. of congestion, right? Um, ultimately, we need more buses, we need bus lanes, some would say. How are you addressing these issues? Okay, so <clears throat> I don't think it's either or. Now, if you track back what I've been saying on BFM and also on Facebook and elsewhere, uh, for the last 15 years, I've been advocating for more buses. Let's take... Uh, you have... Uh, uh, if you look at the whole map of the Klang Valley, you have millions of journey paths. where People are moving, zigzagging all over the place. Some paths are very congested. Like everyone is moving along the federal highway from Klang towards Shalam, towards Subang, towards PJ, towards KL. That's that's a pipeline that is so heavy. So that pipeline deserves an MRT, deserves a, a mass mover. You know, you when we can, and, and in the technical terms, they measure how many thousand people you move per direction per hour. Right. Then you have smaller ones um, between Subang Jaya to SS2 may be barely enough for a bus because there's not that many people moving. Uh, but then you have Subang Jaya to Taipan. Uh, that you have more people moving justifies a bus. So you do need more buses. Let's take rule of thumb. Uh, I've always liked to use the example of London because London's about the same size as the Klang Valley. They're both slightly more than 2,000 square kilometres. They're both about 8 million people. So size, land size, as well as the number of people, it's a... Uh, fair comparison to the Klang Valley, London has over 8,000 buses. Right. And the Klang Valley has slightly more than 1,000 buses. So while you have your train lines as your biggest backbone, you need the second layer bones, the buses. And and we need to increase the buses. And uh, and that's why I would advocate, you know, maybe at least 7,000 more buses in the Klang Valley and maybe 10,000 buses nationally because, uh, you know, you got Penang, JB. We should not forget all this. Uh, the rest right. of the country in improving public transport, it's not only the Klang Valley who needs it. Uh, so this country needs maybe 10,000 more buses buses to to roll that out but not only that then how do people get to the bus stops and can the bus stop serve everywhere it it cannot because there are many paths which do not have enough volume to justify a bus service and when you do not have enough volume to justify a service then you maybe step down to the next one a demand response when so you've got uh, our kumpol being an example where the van moves around transporting people where there's not enough demand for a bus but still a need to move people around. Mm. And so a demand response van that doesn't necessarily ply a route unless there's someone pulling the van towards them when there's a rider waiting at a particular stop, then only the van goes there. So demand response van is something that could not be done 20 years ago because the technology wasn't there. If you wanted to do the demand response van 20 years ago, you needed to have a switchboard, uh, tons of phone lines, operators answering it, and someone manually coordinating and and every two minutes calling the van driver to say, go here now, go here now. So without the smartphone, you couldn't do the demand response 20 years ago. And that's why last time people didn't talk about it. But today with the smartphone, uh, the driver has a phone. He just listens to what the phone tells him to drive to next. And 
technology is designing the path and that enables the to to exist uh, and also for low density areas you have the scooter now not everyone needs to wait for a bus when you get off the LRT station you could hop on a scooter and get to your workplace immediately without having to wait another 10 more minutes right. for a bus so it, it all complements each other maybe maybe there's no bus going to where you're going and so how do you get there you could wait for Kumpol if Kumpol exists in your area you could go on the scooter so I, I think there's a place for buses, there's a place for demand response vans like Kumpol, there's a place for scooters, and there's a place for cycling, and there's a place for walking. They all need to coexist in order to make public transport work. If they don't, if you don't complete the whole uh, circle of products, people are going to feel that it doesn't work and I'll drive. That's the cost of your journey. But does your vision um, clash with the vision of developers and all of that, right? So that's a very interesting question that someone um, just wrote in. So we'll go for a we'll go for a quick break. Um, on the show with me today is YB Rajiv Rishakaran. Um, he's the Adon for Bukit Gassing and a member of the DAP. After the break, we'll continue this discussion. A very interesting question, um, and a number of people have asked that question, right? So you're listening to Upper Macham Adon on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. You're listening to the first episode of our Upper Macham Adun series. Joining me in the studio today is YB Rajiv Rishakaran. He's the Adun for Bukit Gassing. He's also a member of the DAP. And we are talking about congestion, public transportation, last mile connectivity. So if you'd like to send in some questions for YB Rajiv, you can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899. You can tweet us at BFM Radio. You can also call us 03-7733-2900. Um, so YB, an interesting question came in from Sharon. Um, Rajiv, how does your vision for public transportation square with the government's willingness to sell out to developers who just want to build more highways like PJD Link, despite a vociferous protest from communities or uh, various communities? We've got a number of questions like that. They say, right. you know, uh, people are saying uh, PHMP sometimes or PHR don't say nice things sometimes, a lot of times, but then in, in the end, they bow down to capital interest. Okay. So we're getting a number of questions like this. How, right. how are you going to tackle this? Okay. Okay, so we talked about how big cities need public transport if we don't want to get stuck in jams. So a lot of big cities in the world, when they plan their transport, they have an aim. Maybe 50% public transport ridership, 50% private cars. Uh, the federal government has an aim for the Klang Valley, which is 40% public transport, 60% private cars. Today, it's about 10 to 20% public transport, 80 to 90% private cars. So that that's a big gap that we need to grow, the public transport usage. Uh, some governments have an ambitious aim for 60% public transport, which means 40% private transport. But in all of the governments planning around the world, uh, I have not met a government that plans for 100% public transport, 0% private cars. So we acknowledge that it's private cars still exist, private cars still drive, and uh, highways uh, will be proposed by either the government or private parties from time to time. It, it happens. And in the case of PJD Link, it is not a government-designed highway. The Slango government did not design the PJD Link highway and say we want to build it. Who will tender for it? And not at all. In fact, it was a, it's a private company that has uh, conceptualized the idea and have gone to the federal government and the state government and asked for permission to build it. It is far from being approved. Uh, they have not submitted their traffic impact assessment, social impact assessment, and environmental impact assessment to the Slango 
government. So the Selangor government hasn't even begun assessing this highway because the highway proposer has not even submitted these three things, the three crucial documents to the state government. Uh, but even cities which have massive uh, ridership of public transport like Singapore, they do build highways as well. So will Selangor say no to every highway? Uh, probably not. Uh, some highways may be needed in some parts. Does it mean PJ dealing is needed? Probably not. I, I don't think we like a new monstrous highway cutting through a mature development right. area. It, it's it's going to be ugly. It's going to look unsightly. It's going to come with a lot of disturbances. If they can't prove that this highway has tremendous benefit to the traffic in PJ, why should we accept it? Right. Slango government under Pakatan is bold enough. It has rejected KDEX in the past. It has also accepted the West Coast Expressway where the residents who live along the West Coast Expressway really want the highway to ease the congestion on the federal uh, Route 5. The, you know, the old trunk road, the right. one-lane road, two-lane road that has tremendous traffic jams on the weekend if you drive towards Sikinchan and uh, Sabak Bernam. Uh, and, and the residents along there, they really want the West Coast High Expressway and, and the Slango government has said yes to that. So uh, will we objectively assess a highway when it comes? Yes, if the highway proposer goes beyond the rhetoric in the newspapers, from time to time, uh, the highway proposer does give uh, comments and interviews in the media. Uh, his next step is, if he's really serious about building this highway, he has to submit the traffic impact assessment, social impact assessment, environmental impact assessment to the Slango government. Right. And we know these documents are not ready. <laughs> If the fact is their consultants are going around and interviewing people, it's proof that these documents are not ready. So only if these documents get submitted will the Slango government assess it and make a decision. You talk about the Slango government being bold, and this brings up a question that we got from Instagram. And You're it right. says, why does the state government, bracket read Pakatan Harapan, continue to approve these projects? Now, we had a different government before, before 2008, um, government changed, but now environmentalists and resident, residents associations sometimes are protesting against Pakatan Harapan as well. All right. But if I look at it objectively, uh, the Slango Pakatan government has changed the tide of how things are done. Look at Petaling Jaya. Uh, before 2008, Green Lung after Green Lung has been sold off to developers, whether at market price or below market price. You've, if you remember the stories that broke soon after the 2008 election, a lot of land in the Klang Valley, including here in PJ, was sold to AMNO and MCA and their political leaders for one ringgit a square feet. So this kind of nonsense has not happened since 2008. Since 2008, every single playground in Petaling Jaya has been protected. We have gazetted our green lungs. The Bukit Gassing Hill is safe on the PJ side. The KL side had a lot of threat of development and in fact some condominiums have come up under the previous government. Now that the government has changed in KL, uh, I think that's come to an end. <laughs> but if you look at the track record of 15 years uh, that Pakatan has been government here in PJ, every single green lung has been protected. Slango has um, all the municipal governments, all the local governments in Slango has a published master plan. They, it's called local plan, Rancangan Tempatan. So you've got Rancangan Tempatan, Petaling Jaya, Rancangan Tempatan, Klang, and so on. These master plans spell out what can be built and cannot be built on any 
plot of land, uh, whether this plot of land is for low-density housing, whether this plot of land is for commercial development. And in, in Slango, you have to follow that. It's not a cowboy town where any piece of land, uh, you could just apply to build whatever you want. And it's uh, the mayor's ad hoc decision. So before 2018, KL didn't have a local plan. You know, if a landowner, a developer goes to see the mayor of KL and, you know, persuades him that, let me build this here, let me build that there. Uh, it's the it's a case-by-case approval basis rather than an adherence to a master plan. Whereas you look in PJ for the last 15 years, we have been adhering to the master plan. Things that get approved are in accordance to the master plan. So there may be questions like, why is this condominium coming up? But you know, if you look at the master plan, it's because it's already been zoned for a condominium, actually, oftentimes decades ago. Right. So there is a, you know, so this is an interesting question from Twitter as well. Um, the benchmark of increasing property values has always been the development of malls um, and, and general commercial buildings, uh, corporate towers. Um, developers always find ways to secure an empty land to build luxury condos. Um, should Can there be ways in which we prohibit them from doing so unless they fulfill certain criteria, like enough public parks, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, enough um, emphasis given on connectivity, on mm-hmm. accessibility for OKU people, so on and so forth. Are there ways in which we sort of intervene um, and, and, and sort of force the developers' hands in, this, in that sense? Yeah, um, there's going to be very, new town- very little new townships in Slango. Uh, a lot of the townships are quite fully built up and you have pockets of development that take place. Uh, that's just how the nature is because we, we were quite developed as it is today. Uh, so like Kwasa Damansara may be one of the rare examples where you've got a new township. And instead of the developer starting construction from day one, Kwasa Damansara went through a rigorous, rigorous master plan discussion at the MBPJ and MBSA level because half the land is in PJ and half in Shalam. After the rigorous discussion, a Ranchangan Kawasan Has master plan was published for the public feedback. A lot of people gave their feedback. And a lot of this feedback was then incorporated and a second round was published. Far less objection in the second round. And, and that goes to show that when we plan new townships today, we go through that process of public engagement and we'll not see the result of it. Today, it'll take another 10, 20 years to see the results of what happens in Kwasa Damansara and, and did all this rigorous planning and public engagement process uh, yield a nicer township, uh, a more loved township than our older townships. So in terms of improving PJ, uh, one of the more built-up areas, yeah, there's, there's always improvement projects year to year. But it also takes time to evolve. We, we don't have a cannonball and an unlimited budget to just simply rack things and rebuild everything. It's it's a, it's a work in progress, uh, but it's something that it's coming up. Every year, MPBJ lays out more and more pedestrian walkways. We are, we're constantly building new pedestrian walkways. We're constantly changing drains to underground drains and covered with pedestrian walkway on top. And we're constantly planting trees on the roadside. In fact, one of the challenges I've had uh, when we did our 1,000 tree initiative two years ago is that it is very difficult to find any more space to plant trees on the roadside in PJ. We kind of maxed out the road shoulders that we have. So if I mean if if you live in the Bukit Gasing area and you know of a road shoulder that still has space to put in a tree that we missed out, you know, 
reach me on Instagram or Facebook <laughs> and, and we'll, we'll look into it because we want to green the city as much as possible. We want to make the city as walkable as possible. And, and it's a work in progress. There is still more to be done, uh, but it, it is a continuous thing that has to be improved every year as we mature. So we got a fun one from Russell. All right, um, let's you take a fun a, one. Yeah, you say you're a public, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, public transport enthusiast. So yes. would the state government consider introducing electric tram services in some areas of Petaling Jaya? Actually, I have proposed uh, one route for a tram. Um, it is it it has concerns with uh, cost. It's going to be a costly project, and I think. Uh, it's hard to do it without the federal government support. So things like this, uh, there's there's a lot of wish lists. Uh, in fact, the Slango government has produced a transport master plan outlining 12 corridors of public transport. And this could either be fulfilled with a LRT or a tram. Uh, so one of those corridors is the corridor number 11, which cuts through PJ. Uh, that's the one which I think a tram, uh, uh, it might fit a tram. And all these 12 corridors the Slango government has presented to the federal government, it's a multi-billion dollar. You know, one MRT line costs 50 billion ringgit. It's not cheap to implement 12. But but the Slango government is mindful. And that's why the Slango government has uh, studied this and produced this plan. And it's a plan that hopefully in the years to come, we can slowly. So, you know, we've had MRT 1, MRT 2, MRT 3 is being talked about now. And then later we'll have to go to either MRT 4 or, right. not, or another LRT line. We'll get there. So it's possible that the next line may be a tram instead of an LRT. It's definitely possible. You bring up a budget um, as a major sort of constraint, right? It is a constraint. Um, So there's an interesting question from Twitter and and it says, is it possible that we tax the person who has more than, let's say, three cars or if they have luxury cars instead of, you know, driving certain, let's say, Japanese models or Malaysian models, they are driving those big luxury sports cars. Can we start taxing them? You know, because other than making sure that public transport is easily accessible, um, why not, you know, at the same time sort of discourage people Mm -hmm. from Mm -hmm. getting, uh, you know, personal vehicles and then you that money, which, like you said, severely lacking, yeah. to fund all these public projects. Uh, yeah. In fact, Prime Minister Anwar Ibrahim has talked about the luxury car tax. Spot on. Uh, we're all in agreement with that. Hopefully, we can see uh, that happen soon. Uh, but, you know, there's always an argument of chicken and egg. So, it, I understand why a lot of people um, squeeze through their monthly budget to buy the MyWee or their Proton Saga, mm-hmm. uh, to get to work and back because they don't really have much option. If you happen to live in an area that just doesn't have good public transport connectivity. Right. So I think maybe in this chicken and egg question, uh, the government should roll out much more public transport infrastructure. And we talked about uh, 8,000 buses in London to you know serve the whole 2,000 square kilometers of London. Could we see our 1,000 buses climb up to maybe 5,000 buses first? That means we could introduce far more bus routes, giving far more connectivity. Uh, and then that's when the congestion charge could come in after that. So we should roll out the services that enable people to make the switch. But then after that, we should start putting in this discouraging this this mechanisms to discourage driving. Uh, another example is like maybe near the LRT stations in the city center, maybe there should be a parking tax to make parking more expensive. 
discouraging people from driving in where there's already public transport. So if you're coming in to PJ, take the if you're coming to PJ City Center area, maybe take the LRT into Taman Jaya or Asia Jaya LRT station rather than drive. And then from there, take our Kumpol, our PJ free bus, or in fact the normal rapid KL buses to where you're going nearby there rather than drive. So th- these are measures that we slowly need to bring the public in on. Um and, and persuade the public that this is not to extract more money from you per se, but it's also to balance and, and, and shift the behaviour towards public transport usage. So I, I think today is a great opportunity. You know, this discussion is, is going to plant seeds in people's head like, you know what, we need to go public transport. We need to migrate our habits towards public transport, especially during the office hour peak period. So when you drive to work and you drive back from work, that should change. But when you drive at night to your relative's house, when you drive on the weekends to go to Kuala Selangor for seafood dinner, go ahead and drive. That, that, that's okay. But when on Monday morning when you go to work, then maybe leave the car in the house and take public transport. So we need to move towards that direction. Alright, let's go for another quick break. On the show with me today is YB Rajiv Rishakaran. He's the Adun for Bukit Gasing and a member of, it, of the DAP. After the break, we will discuss a bit more about public transport but also about the upcoming state elections. How are things going with the new AMNO pakatan Harapan partnership? Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. You're listening to the first episode of our Upper Macham Adun series. Joining me in the studio today is YB Rajiv Rishakaran. He's the Adun for Bukit Gasing. He's also a member of the DAP. Um, before the break, we talked about public transportation. We're going to touch on that a little bit more, but also switch gears and talk about the upcoming state election. So if you have any questions that you'd like to send for Rajiv to address, you can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899. You can tweet us at BFM Radio. You can also call us 03 to 900. Um, so we've got a question on WhatsApp that asks um, basically can the Selangor government also improve the bus stops? I think, you know, it is a kind of a broad statement, but I guess, you know, even when you walk around, sometimes there are, you know, bus stops that buses don't drive by. Mm-hmm. You know, now pe- people are just using that to like hang out or whatever. And, and or empty buses now, like there are cars and all parked, uh, you know, in front of the bus stops. Even around our office area, there are bus stops that don't actually, buses don't, you know, drive by. Okay. So what what's actually happening here? What's the cause of it? And how are y'all going to address this issue? Okay, uh, I think you raised up a few things. Let's tackle them one by one quickly. Uh, bus stops that no buses go by, these really do exist. Now, remember the 1,000 buses that we have? We've actually seen bus routes being cut over the last 20 years. So some of the areas that used to have a bus service 20 years ago uh, may not have a bus service today. So they are abandoned bus stops because no buses fly through it. Um, I would love to see more buses come back on the road as we've talked about this afternoon and and hopefully buses come back in those areas but that's one one side of the problem the other side of the problem is what has come in over the this whatsapp message is a lot of bus stops do not have a structure for people to wait they're just a stand to indicate that the bus stops here uh this is actually not unique to kl uh, even in singapore you do have uh, these structures uh, in london you do have these structures uh, some bus stops have uh, very low ridership 
uh, and then you balance the fact that this is in front of people's houses and uh, people may not be very actually most people are not comfortable with a bus stop structure being built right in front of your house and so you have to balance you know if it's a high volume place then maybe a structure is needed if it's a low volume place then then you know is there uh uh, how do we do we build a structure there if it's going to cause a lot of unhappiness to some people? So it's it's a balancing thing and, and it's about maximizing your resources as well as managing all your stakeholders. So uh, a lot of the pictures, uh, a number of pictures are shown that, you know, people can't see, but I can see on the screen here. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, all the pictures are in front of someone's house. <laughs> so yes, right. I, I do understand that the bus does pass by and these stops are in front of people's houses and... and do what? That's the dilemma. Right. Uh, we've got a message from Winston Yu who says the bus frequency is very bad. I think that's that's something that, that needs to be talked about more because having buses or having a bus stop, um, even in the best location, mm-hmm. is not going to make people use buses if the if, frequency if is if bad. Frequency, yeah. So I think frequencies need to be at least every 10 minutes uh, for a bus route to work. Maybe you can stretch it to 15 minutes at worst, but uh, every 10 minutes. Now, the thing is, a lot of the bus routes are only allocated two buses. Some bus routes are allocated three buses. So, so by the time the bus makes a, the full circle on the route and comes back, you end up having frequencies of 40 minutes. Now, if you only have a 1,000 buses in circulation, uh, that's what's going to happen. Only two buses get allocated to a route, or three buses get allocated to a route. This is why we need to increase the number of buses on the road so we are able to put six buses on that route and have it serviced every 10 minutes instead. All right, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the upcoming state elections. All right, let's so, do this. <laughs> I think you have some difficult questions for me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um, you know, basically, uh, you know, before the, the, the whole um, con- current configuration at the federal level, where it is a unity government of, st- of sorts, it's a mixed mm-hmm. coalition government where they call it the unity government. Yes. Um, you know, at one point, Amno used to be like a sworn nemesis of Pakatan Harpan. In fact, you know, the entire reformasi movement was about bringing down uh, the giant and, and so on and so forth, among other things, of course. Yeah. Now, y'all are in the same team, essentially. Mm-hmm. How's the working relationship been like? All right. So I think we have a cordial working relationship. Um, at the local level, uh, it's quite business as usual that's how it's been the last few years uh so amno is not as strongly present uh in a lot of seats that pakatan has been historically uh, very strong for the last 10 15 years so in places like bukit gasing uh there's very little activity by barisan national uh, over the last 10 years uh and i guess you know we we just keep doing our own thing uh some parts of Slango where Amno is very active, they continue to be very active. I think what has changed is uh, we stop aiming the guns at each other. <laughs> right. right. So we stop aiming the guns at each other. I think the cooperation is more on a day-to-day basis at the highest level, at cabinet. Right. Uh, but when you talk about at the constituency level uh, and MPs, uh, the areas which are, con- uh, what do you call, uh, more Pakatan strongholds, uh, continue to be, you know, continue to have an MP from Pakatan. The day-to-day operations are uh, not much different than the past. So, what about seat negotiations? Mm-hmm. What is the philosophy behind the seat negotiations? Uh, that's an how how are various parties saying right. who gets what? 
Okay, so this is complicated, but I think we are learning the lesson of what have went wrong with the last unity government. So, uh, after the Sheraton move, Bersatu and Amno had the and their unity government, but that unity government clashed at all the state elections. So, uh, started with Sabah, then Malacca and Johor, uh, and when they clashed at the first time at the Sabah state elections, it created so much friction friction uh, between Bersatu and AMNO and and you destabilize your federal government by doing so so for this term of the federal government this is the unity government and so at the state level also they uh, will be cooperation to ensure that you know we we minimize politicking we move forward as a government until the next general election and then we go back to contestation and 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 we see what happens uh, with the results then so for the next four and a half more years uh this is the this is the the f- I guess the partnership at the federal level that then extends to the state level. And so for that, there needs to be some seed negotiations of how we will not clash. So largely, I think most seats will see uh, AMNO candidates campaigning in their seats and then you'll have PKR, DAP candidates campaigning in their seats. It's more that we don't clash with each other. We don't fight with each other. Uh, but in terms of uh, integration of officers and campaign teams, maybe maybe won't, maybe you won't see so much of them. It could be on a case-to-case basis at a driven local area. So in order to ensure that we don't clash, we need to negotiate the seats. I think a good starting point is the seats that we have won. Uh, we continue to contest in that. So I'm no contestors in their seats. We don't ask for their seats. They don't ask for our seats. And then the seats in the middle, which seats are belong to Bersatu and Pass? That's the seats that we need to negotiate. Should Amno contest in that seat, or should PKR, or should DAP, or should Amana contest in that seat? So that negotiations are still underway. I think there has to be give and take. If <laughs> we cannot demand that we get all, or they cannot demand they get all, uh, there will be some right. some give and take. And I think the give and take will also extend beyond uh, one state because you have six states going for election at the same time. Uh, I, I believe that the give and take will also extend across state boundaries. So I have another, one more question for you before we wrap this conversation up. So Prikatan National um, undeniably did incredibly well in GE15, um, including picking up parliamentary seats mm-hmm. um, in Selangor, KL and Penang. Yeah. Right? Um, these are generally known as Harapan Fortresses. Prikatan mm-hmm. National managed to penetrate. Yeah. Now, zooming in on Selangor, which yeah. at the state level has been held by Pakatan since 2008, mm-hmm. what do you think the Selangor government did wrong or didn't do enough mm-hmm. to cause this to happen or mm. where do y'all think y'all failed to bridge the gap? Okay, so first of all, I think the last general election was not about the Selangor government's performance. Right, it, yes. it was a choice of Prime Minister. Did you want Anwar Ibrahim to be Prime Minister? Did you want Ismail Sabri to be Prime Minister? Uh, did you want Muhyiddin to come back to be Prime Minister? And I think that was the driving decision behind a lot of people's decision to cast their vote. Um, yes, Perikatan made headway in uh, a lot of parts of the country, including in Selangor, uh, the northern part of Selangor. It is... Um, Arguably, on one side, a rejection of Barisan that led them to go somewhere. And between Harapan and Perikatan, they But they didn't choose Harapan. Yeah, they chose Perikatan yeah. instead of Harapan. But I think that was the decision at that moment. Since then, the landscape has changed. 
the unity government has been formed. Now it's a straight fight, not a three-corner fight. And in fact, in the three-corner fight, Perikatan did not slam dunk those six seats they won in Slango. They they won because they had the most vote among three parties. In fact, oftentimes they didn't win even 50% of the vote. So now when you have uh, a straight fight in this coming state election, at least between the the bigger parties. I mean, I, I believe there'll be some independent candidates and some smaller parties also joining the fray. But in, among the big parties, you'll have a straight fight between either a Harapan candidate and a Perikatan candidate or a Barisan candidate and a Perikatan candidate. I think the decision made will be very different. And so then the decision is, do we want to let the Harapan government continue to run in Slango as we have done in the last 15 years? Or do we want to reject the Harapan government and have a, a change? So uh, we've been keeping tabs on the ground. Uh, besides the feedback that we get through the endless programs that we continuously run in our constituencies, we also have uh, polls that are being done by various parties, uh, Medeka Centre, our own internal uh, institute, Darul Ehsan, uh, to, to see whether people are happy with the direction of the Slango government. I so far, the direction is happy, but you know this is campaigning. Uh, so in the next two months, anything can change. The mood can change. Depends on how we campaign and how Perikatan campaign. Uh, it's our duty to persuade that we have been good stewards of your money in the last fifteen years. We have shown what good governance uh, can do uh, as a return on the people's money. Uh, how open tender has saved a lot of expenses. How we have increased so much of programs that were not. In existence before this, you know, we've got these binkas giving 300 ringgit a month to low-income families to help uh, overcome hungry uh, homes. Uh, we have got Peduli Sehat helping to, uh, with healthcare, uh, where, you know, Slango has been able to do it. A lot of other states have not been able to, to do it. These programs are new. Your Chukai Tana, which is the sole Chukai allowed by the constitution for the state government, has not increased. We have not gone and said, like, we're going to increase our Chukai Tana on you by two times, three times. Uh, but at the same time, we've been able to increase these products and services because we have demonstrated by doing open tenders and by managing the state resources well, there is returns on that, and that returns is then channeled back. Has Slango done enough to bridge the racial and religious gap? I think in Slango, you have probably the most uh, bridging of of this gap. Uh, Slango government has taken care of the surahs and the mosque uh, quite well. In fact, you won't hear complaints. If you try to Google and see how much of complaints you have, like has the state government been neglecting the mosque and the surahs in Slango? No. But at the same time, uh, Slango has been in the forefront in... Uh, legalizing, I mean, giving the land to all these temples and churches that have existed for decades. So in Bukit Gasing alone, uh, uh, over 30 plots of land uh, that has been, I mean, used to build for temples, for for the, some of them stretch back from the 50s and the 60s. The Seven Temple, as an example, is it's been there probably from the 50s or maybe even earlier. The land has never been given to them by the previous Slango government, but our Slango administration has been giving the land, recognizing the existence of these temples and these churches uh, at a rate that I think is unprecedented. Uh, we have also been giving financial contributions every year to Chinese school, Tamil schools, to mosque, uh, and as well as the churches, the temples. Uh, 
And if you look at the messaging coming from the Menteri Besar, uh, it's one of unity and one of bringing people together rather than pitting one race against the other. So not just in rhetoric, but where in, in, in the decisions that we make, in the land that we give, in the money that we give, I think we've been walking the talk. Rajiv, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. That was YB Rajiv Rishyakaran. He's the Adon for Bukit Gassing and a member of the DAP. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check out this conversation on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my or wherever you get your podcasts from. You just have to look up Beyond the Ballot Box podcast. I'm Dashan Johan and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9.